Hello, it's Jack Tudor here from Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Audrey Chen, an improviser, primarily for cello and voice, based in Berlin. I saw Audrey play at Fort Process Festival a couple of years back, which is this wonderful festival just outside of Brighton, set in a fort, New Haven Fort, and um, Audrey played in one of the rooms there, and she was incredible. It was just her and a microphone, and she played an improvised set, and there were points at which it sounded incredibly human and was bedecked with breath sounds and all this and then other times where she just seemed to completely elevate herself away from anything I recognize as the human voice so it was really awesome to have Audrey on to talk about her three important records although I say that actually as you'll hear in this conversation Audrey doesn't really connect with the idea of the album so much Uh, she connects more with people and so we use these three albums really as a means to talk about the artists behind them more than the music within the records, which I'm totally game for. I'm up for spinning this format however my guests see fit. So this is a really interesting discussion. And once again, we kind of bleed out of the lines to talk about um, Audrey's relationship with improvisation. Um, Also her relationship with her son as well. And also when the two collide, improvisation and parenthood, some really wonderful things happen it seems so we talk about that as well as always you can find out more information about audrey's picks and links to audrey's work at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening and without further delay here's my conversation with audrey chen on crucial listening I wanted to begin by asking you about your uh, recent tour with Richard Scott. I understand you've been playing together for a while now, um, but you recently came over to the UK. How was it for you? How was playing over here? It was uh, it was our first tour in, uh, outside of Berlin. Uh, we had only played in Berlin before. Um, and it's now the, I guess we've been playing since about just over two years. And it was really good just to kind of take it on the road and have some days of being able to repetitively play play and perform. We had, I think, maybe four concerts and a recording session up in Manchester. Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, the whole thing started down in Hastings as part of an opening party for the Coastal Currents Festival. And then we went up to Otto and London and... We played in Bradford at Fuse Arts and then in Manchester, and then we had a recording day. That's a really nice string of places. That's quite a, um, you know, that's not the usual batch of UK dates that you often get, uh, you know, the cluster of like Bristol, London, Manchester, Brighton, you know, to start in Hastings. That's that's quite a nice opening. Yeah, it was uh, basically, I feel like my last day of summer because I arrived there on late on the 31st and the concert was on the 1st and it was a beautiful summery day. The sea was really clear. The sky was clear. But yeah, it was a nice way to start it. I mean, when we got up to Manchester, basically it was raining (laughs) almost the whole time. Um, So at least we had that at the beginning. And you mentioned as well about playing repeatedly. Um, Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is that not something you've you've had the opportunity to do with Richard in a, a performance context up till this point? Yeah, we haven't. I mean, every now and then we have uh, we have concerts, but they're once, and then three months goes by, and maybe we play again. Or it's um, it's an opportunity to really, I think, flush out a lot of material while you still have the focus. 
because we both do a lot of other things and it's nice to take that time to have just the one project to think about. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, was there, did you feel the imprint of playing uh, performances consistently like that um, in terms of, I mean, was there anything that kind of gathered throughout playing that string of performances in terms of the way that you guys were collaborating? I think I can't really say anything really tangible. I mean, I, I, we just felt, I, I feel like we just went through so much more material that we're not usually able to get through with just one performance that is half an hour or 40 minutes. So it was really kind of invaluable to be able to have a string of concerts plus uh, a recording session, which we have done once. But this one was for a record label in Manchester, Cusp Recordings. Sam Weaver, he runs that. Um, and that will be another album release at some point, hopefully next year. But also having that opportunity to record in that way, we did it actually all by headphones, which was super nice um, to be able to hear everything really close and really clearly. And it was a very good recording atmosphere, good microphones and good studio. Did that take a while to get used to? So, so you both had headphones on and hearing each other just directly through the headphones rather than through the room? Yeah, that was great. It didn't take much to get used to at all. It was it was almost uh, uh, better than when you're in the room because it was a kind of ideal listening situation. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you're off on tour again as well, actually, aren't you next month? Um, with yeah, the next... Taliban. Mm, yeah, with, <laughs> but it will be completely different. I, yeah. <laughs> Do you know that you know this band? I've had one collaboration they did, and I can't recall who it was with, but it was really intense. Um, all I remember is loud. I didn't, not much more than that, but um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... I'm curious because I haven't played live with them. I've played with Matt once. We have we've done a little bit of recording, but I haven't played on the road with them before, so it'll be a, a new experience. And they're they're both uh, they have both have a lot of personality, so I'm looking forward to that part of the experiment too. Uh, we have about five dates or six? No, we have about seven dates in the U.S. Yeah, and it's sort of intermixed. I I go to the states every month and a half, two months. My son lives there in Baltimore, and uh, it's sort of mixed into my visit for, with to be with him actually. So. And are you playing with Taliban or um, as a, a, a separate set to theirs? No, I'm playing with them. It's Taliban plus Audrey Chen. Wow. But there is, a, I mean, we play at this festival in Iowa City, also called Witching Hour, and then one evening, actually, we're separate. They play as Taliban and I play as myself. But there's lots of other stuff on the, in the program, and then the next day we play all three of us together. Does your... Um as part of your prep for something like that, to what degree do you think you're informed by the expectation of playing with someone, I say, say like Taliban, who have, I guess, quite a distinctive approach to what they're doing, um, and I guess will have its own imprint on the way that the performances manifest in the same way that you do, but what kind of, how does that affect how you prepare for those live experiences? I mean, I don't really prepare differently for different things. I mean, kind of part of what my, my practice is, is just staying in shape um, and just doing. I don't think about things too carefully before I, before I play, if we could just say it like that. I kind of just do it. And so I don't think that their approach is more unique than Richard's or more unique than other people that I, I generally play with, uh, it's just going to be different. Uh, probably it's more high energy, so maybe I need to make sure I have a bit more energy, but that's about <laughs> it. Yeah. Because um, I'm always interested, I mean, I've, I saw you play, I saw you perform at Fort Process a couple yeah. of years back. And I think one thing that really interests me 
with vocal improvisation performances and i think this is because i'm someone who is a you know serious overthinker is making that first sound and i've watched videos of you today as well where i'm always pondering the process that leads up to the emission of that first sound and and whether there's a um because it's kind of on the the lip of going into the performance whether that it's it's a sound that's more conscious of surroundings than the ones that follow it or i'm sure this is you know nothing that's passing through your head at the time of performing but i mean is there um what's it like to to make that first emission as you're going into like a solo vocal performance i mean i mean that's kind of accurate i do listen to the room i kind of figure out what's happening quickly but I mean, kind of, even when I play with other people, it's similar as with solo. It's this moment before you start playing. It's just all the receptors have to open. It's like all the pores. You have to be able to open all your pores at once, you know, kind of let everything in and then be ready to react at a, like a hair trigger kind of. So I don't really think about it too much. I just sort of, I just go with my instinct and, uh, my instincts, I think, are not completely random. They're they're kind of <laughs> they're there's sort of a pattern of my decision making that's uh, I can't really explain it, but is is not completely random for sure. It's sort of my style, actually. It's, it's all the decisions that I make that create the whatever is distinctive about what I do, right? So I think the beginning sometimes. I mean, there's different things that I do. I guess sometimes I just need to relax, and those are sounds that come out. Sometimes I hear something and then I immediately react to that, but it's not, uh, it's not premeditated. Nothing is premeditated except for the context, I guess, if I'm playing solo or if I'm playing duo or I'm depends on the instrumentation. That's the only premeditated part. Uh, and maybe the, the, uh, the, the sound of the room. Uh, of the sound equipment that I get that sort of dictates how the performance can go also, whether I can hear anything or not, uh, the people in the room. But otherwise, I just don't think about it too much. I, I guess that's probably why you're an improviser and I'm not. It's <laughs> um, probably quite key to be able to eventually do and let the amassment of thought pass. It, it's kind of improvising really in, a, in a, it, as a process, not just in making sound. It's, it's kind of, it is based on how do you make these quick decisions? How do you problem solve on the spot? And how do you make these sort of graceful saves to situations? And everybody does it a bit differently, yeah? So I think that's what provides this sort of really... Uh, uh, kind of flavor that's really alive to the music. This kind of distinctive way of capturing and saving and moving on from moment to moment, how you connect one thought to the next and maybe one non sequitur to the next into something that makes more sense. And then it's a, it's a kind of live weaving of a, some kind of landscape or a nonlinear story or, yeah. One more question on that. I mean, do you feel like your relationship with improvising has changed at all over the time that you've been doing it? Um, yeah. I mean, sure. I have... My life is different, so it changes. And it, it becomes... The the work itself or the process itself is is evolving. I don't also... I don't think about... I need to make myself evolve. It's just, it's natural that it does because I get older and my life changes with age and with the place where I am now. I mean, when I first started, I was a super young mom and everything was converging and this new process, new life, learning most of what I think is the way that I improvise. I learned most from, uh, from my son and kind of negotiating life with him. It was less, not so super academic or thinking about music in its own entity, but really how it interconnected with my life at the time. And now it's different. My son is 17. He's looking to go to college and he's less of this uh, 
beginning of life improvising entity, which he was a complete natural, of course, when he was a baby and a young child. And now it's, it's, my life is different. I also live in Berlin now. I lived in Baltimore before. It, it's all, it's moving and, and shifting. And I mean, there's certain decisions, right, that I made. So for now, I am doing a lot of voice work. Um, and I, before I, I was playing cello more and combining that with the voice and electronics. But now I'm simplifying things. I mean, it's for practical reasons also. It's not just a conceptual thing. Um, actually, the conceptual idea behind it or, or, or the benefit of it is, is secondary because I, I started traveling with just the voice without the cello after a surgical procedure that I had because I couldn't carry it. And I realized anyway that most of my music was very vocally driven. I, I, I got my degree in uh, vocal performance when, a long time ago in classical music. But just kind of separating things and then diving a bit deeper, it's, uh, it's changed the nature of what I do. I think it's much more uh, abstract. It kind of gets more and more abstract the, since I've separated the cello and the voice. Um, for now, it's not a permanent decision. It's just a, it's just a step. So things are changing. But I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I... It's just more like a, I make one decision and things just change. And I don't think about it too much <laughs> either. Well, it's interesting, actually, as we go on now to talk about the records that you've picked for this podcast. It sounds like, again, maybe this is something which... I mean, you mentioned in your email to me that you picked off the top of your head. What was your thought process for deciding on these records? I realized that it can be for some quite difficult to condense down to just three albums that they want to talk about. But what did that look like for you in terms of how you interpreted or related with the idea of picking three records that were important to you? Well, I think, frankly, I, I don't think about albums at all in my life. Really? <laughs> I, I think about, I don't really, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm such a, not, I mean, I listen to music, but I don't, I don't study music like that. And like, I, I listen to an album and say, oh, I love this album. I'm going to listen to it over and over again. I don't, it's not part of my process. It, it's, it's more like I love certain people as I encounter them and then I learn to love what they do because it's really inspiring but it's less about one album and it's more about the time that I've been able to spend with them the music that I've heard from them and understanding their process and where they're from but for me it's much more important than just the listening I, I, I kind of need the background and I guess for the three albums I chose it I mean, there's so much music that I really love, right? Um, it was not super easy. And I tried to stay, of course, in more of a realm of related to maybe what I do instead of saying, wow, I love Stevie Wonder's, you know, Songs in the Key of Life, you know, or I love this album, you know. I don't know. I, I, I have all these things that I used to listen to, but I guess more related to what I do and then being a more sound-based um, these three artists, well, first of all, Scott is a, is a good friend. And I think that he, I, I haven't really listened to all of his album. I mean, I, I've listened to so much of his stuff, but mostly live and we play together too. So I really love what he does. I think it's, it's so moving and it's so poetic and somehow, like, in a kind of completely chaotic way, so perfect. Because it's so, it, it's very autobiographical, and he really ties a lot of strands in to these performances that he has, which are just really stunning. Which I, oftentimes, even people are laughing in the audience, but I feel <laughs> yeah. like I'm going to cry. Um, it's, it's so beautiful, what he does. He's just like that in person. So it, it, I can't separate an album, how I know him and what he does, uh, for instance. Let's start with Scott in that case, which... Um, so I, I read that the pronunciation of his project is, is idem-theftable? 
Oh yeah, that's his his moniker, his music name. And how did you first meet Scott? Oh wow! Um, I first met him, I think, at a really small grassroots little festival in Livermore Falls, Maine, run by a guy named Franz Ostek, and the festival is called Frantasia. <laughs> and it's a really it's a small very economically depressed town there used to be paper mill there and then it closed down and there's anyway but Fran is a huge fan and I don't know enthusiast over kind of what he calls out music so things that are are more experimental in nature more improvised in nature but not necessarily and he and his wife Kathleen they've been running this festival for I don't know more than 10 years my first year I went there with my son. My son was really young then. It was really fun. But I met Scott and I saw this performance that he said was based on a dream that he had. And I I had never seen anything like it. I mean, I was still young in the scene or community or, or young with knowing about a lot of musicians who were improvising and doing all these things. I was in classical music before. But it was just, um, it was stunning. I don't know. I didn't had I had no words. My mouth was open the whole time. It was, uh, it wasn't just, he was, he involved people in the room. They were throwing balls across the room and it was, the timing was so genius. And he's this very tall man with a huge red beard and he looks a bit like a druid, but he wears really bright clothing and, um, uh, very gentle, very kind. Yeah, it was. It had a big effect on me, and I guess slowly over the years we started to play more. I remember an early concert that we played together at this bookstore. Or it's a record shop, actually. It's a record shop in Portland called Strange Maine, and my son was there. And my my biggest memory from this is that we were playing, and my eyes were closed, and I opened my eyes, and my son, in the sort of like most genius improvisational way that children can do. He had a crate on his head, and over this crate, he had a rainbow afghan, and he was walking around the room. <laughs> and this had happened since I had closed my eyes. I had no idea why he decided to do that, and it was just amazing. It was this super magic moment, and it really fit inside of this whole process of what was happening between Scott and I and the in the, our engagement. It was um, my son just sort of joined it together in this true genius mo- moment of the blockhead Afghan, rainbow Afghan, moving alien small person around the room. <laughs> um, I don't know. There, yeah, that's kind of when we began, I think, like mid-2000s, something around there. And speaking of Strange Main, I mean, I saw a video earlier on today of Scott performing outside the store. Uh, yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that. because it's one of those things where um, I guess that kind of physical performance, which is so intertwined with body and gesture and, and voice, um, the kind of public reactions that occur, some seemed quite amused and others almost a bit put off and discouraged from getting too close. Um, yeah. And sort of did that thing where you sort of a watching, you know, turned away, but looking over the shoulder from, you know, about 10 paces away. Um, mm. But I, I love the the um, immersion that he seemed to have in what he was doing, regardless of the, I guess, social situation in which he was in, where people weren't arriving with the expectation of seeing something like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he has this even... Like in other performances, people, I mean, people look at what he does and he's playing with objects that he collects from everywhere, right? Garage sales, flea markets, dumpsters, what have you he uses and he uses in such a interesting way that it can appear with his, his, also the way that he looks kind of comical. So people are laughing or they, because of his stature, they They've, I don't know what they... I think it happens more with him, for instance, than with me, although I've been heckled also. But he gets a lot of heckling at some concerts in different situations. But uh, he really knows how to use it. 
I mean, it's, I'm sure I know that oftentimes it probably really pisses him off, but he really works with that because it, it is part of what happens. So it's not just when you're improvising in a live situation, you're not just improvising with the sound and everybody's quiet. You know, you really, you have to take the entire situation and, and let that become incorporated into the whole process. How does he do that incorporation? Is it something that feeds back into his performance or, or does he engage with the heckler or, or both? I think it's a both thing. I mean, I, I, this is just from my experience with him. It, uh, yeah, it's a kind of, it's a mixture. I mean, I'm, I'm only also speaking about it from my point of view of what I've seen him do. He probably has some other input himself <laughs> yeah. um, for these situations. With the album Endless Blooper, which I was looking forward to saying, um, <laughs> is, <laughs> Blooper's one of my favourites. Is there a, 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 a... It sounds like, I mean, you've mentioned about your connection with the album itself. I mean, not, not the album, the, the premise of an album, not to be um, particularly significant, but was there a, 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 any reason or motive for picking this particular record over the others that you could have chosen i just i happen to have a copy of it so <laughs> right and, and having happening to have a copy of one of scott's albums is is that you have a um a handmade collage work so i i chose it not because i knew exactly the kind of music it would would be on it but it Every cover he makes, all the packaging he does by hand, and it's, it's gorgeous. His collage work is really, it's, um, it's something to behold. So this one that I have is a, it's really a mixture of, there's an image of a duck's head, number seven on it. I don't know, there's it's tape and paper and, and images and just piece, yeah, it's all pieces of things collaged together and, I think this is, it's so connected to the way he works too. I mean, it's, it's so clear his visual work and the way that he mixes together, I don't know, excerpts of old pop songs and noise and beatbox and song and, and crooning and speech and poetry. And it's a, yeah, it's like a collage anyway. That's a sound collage. Yeah, I saw him in an interview saying something about the fact that music in itself is a form of collage only comprised of shapes that are, I guess, now become standard, which is a nice idea. I guess it's not something that I'd really even considered as well, the fact mm. that that would fall under the heading of collage. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's one track actually on this record that spoke to me in particular when I was listening to it over the past couple of days there's one called i keep fucking it up which as someone who i self-term myself a bit of a practical and physical klutz um, <laughs> felt like something that was <laughs> quite an intense uh had a, a, a real resonance with that with that idea but um there was a really interesting sort of it started off feeling quite comical and then really didn't feel too comical near the end yeah i mean uh as I said, a lot of his stuff really reaches into his, it reaches pretty deep, actually, into, I really feel like it's stories from his past and things he's experienced. And it has, he has a way of communicating them because it's sort of also couched in some kind of humor, but it's not necessarily funny. It's um, disarming, but the message is there somehow. And he, it really is the, it's sort of, um, you grew up feeling dispossessed and, and not fitting in and having a hard time for whatever reasons. And this, these emotions are very palpable and, and I feel very, uh, in his performances and also, um, they really resonate. I think they resonate with a lots of people because these are things that people have felt or continue to feel on a daily basis. So... I know. It's quite remarkable how he's able to kind of transfer all that. Yeah. 
to ask about your second record Audrey if, if you'd like to introduce it whichever one you wanted to pick and then um, tell me why that one is important to you uh, probably well the next one was uh, Le Quanin and it was his album Utensil and for me uh, kind of revolutionary uh, because it was one of the first that I had heard and it really changed the way that I thought about sound. Nin has a, a fantastic way of basically creating architecture from his music. And I came from a classical background, started playing cello when I was eight and started singing when I was 11. And I completely was immersed in this. Uh, all my life, I had no friends when I was growing up, and I practiced a lot. And I was, in every way, sort of weirdly schooled by these rules and these aesthetics. And even though it wasn't quite right, I think the fit was never quite there. I mean, it was my life, but it was not exactly what I was looking for. So I think that when I first heard this album, I it kind of blew, mm, blew all the doors open in my head about all these rules. It just seemed so, uh, so fluid and the sounds, the, all the timbres that he was able to create and textures, it was super rich and I don't know, very, very, very inspiring to me somehow as I mean I was maybe I was how old was I maybe I was 26 or I was 27 when I first heard it my son was three 27 new life new sounds and do you remember who put you onto it yeah it was um I got a CDR copy from this guy in Baltimore his name is John Burnt and he was kind of instrumental and kind of kind of supporting this um, kind of grassroots experimental scene in the city. Um, and I met him through his, an ex of his. Um, but he gave me some music to listen to, and this was one of those things. Am I right in saying you have performed as well with with him? I think actually on, I, I think I saw on Susan's, Susan Alcon's album, is that right? There is a... I, I performed with Nin first for the first time in Baltimore many years ago when I was uh, still a very young improviser. I think it was 2005 or something like this. I can't remember. And then more recently, we did a kind of larger group project together in Sweden. Um, I was part of a, a, a larger ensemble um, that this uh, composer, Klaus Nevrin, put together. And he had invited Nin to be a guest with the group. And we did some playing and we did a performance also but it was a larger constellation of people but I haven't worked with him so much no he's just somebody who I kind of I have a lot of respect for and I really also love the way that he speaks about music and his philosophy about improvisation is resonates a lot with me and is, is that something that's had an imprint on your own relationship with improvisation? Um, well, I didn't know so much about his philosophy about it until uh, this project in Sweden, which was last year. I mean, I, can, I could only have uh, guessed it, but the music itself, yeah, I would say that the, that album has an imprint about how I listen to things and how I, how I play, in a way. I mean, first of all, it was... Uh, it, broke my mind apart from um, melodic music 
So it's, for me, when I improvise, it's really not with notes. I don't really think about notes anymore. Although when I was always playing, it was, uh, or singing, it was note-based. And the, the, the sort of scope of sound is, is so much huger than notes. <laughs> so it sort of, it, yeah, it, it kind of opened a lot of territory for the way that I listen to things. And I know this kind of thing doesn't always lend itself to articulation, but is there anything in particular about the the, the manner of his his improvisation or the the, the uh, way he interacts with um, percussion and his instruments that that compels you as someone who listens to it? I think that it's so well executed what he does, and it's very fluid and very natural, like very relaxed. It always feels like he's listening with such an open ear and that his movements are very, they're very precise, but completely relaxed. And the way that he transitions from cymbal to pine cone to other object, it's, it's really fluid and really, um, super graceful somehow I mean not that the music is like it, it can be super boisterous and, and, and it can move into so many different territories but the way that he he does it is with such uh, ease and grace and precision yeah those three words I guess <laughs> and it's, very, it's, it's completely impressive also I mean it, it, he knows what he's doing and that is really apparent so it's, uh, and it, even if something by accident happens, he knows how to save it with a, in like a super, you know, graceful way. What's, uh, what's your relationship with accident in the, the improvised context? Is it something that, when, when it arises, when things don't go as intended, how do you handle that? I don't know if I have one way of handling it. It's just, <laughs> I, it's just you handle it, right? If yeah. something happens, you just, you just deal with it. You don't think about, oh, how am I going to handle this? <laughs> I mean, uh, this, is, this, is where, this is where it comes into this sort of holistic way of how I think about my music and my life and how I learned so much of improvising from my son. Is, I mean, oh, it's like, yeah, if there's something that happens, you just deal with it. If my son, for instance, he has to go to the bathroom during the concert and we're on tour, I have to deal with it. And what do I do? Do I have to, do I get angry at him? Do I stop everything. No, I kind of, how do you carry the moment and deal with what you need to deal with and then continue on? Or I don't know. I've had countless situations also that I mean, I used to just be at so many concerts and when they're little things just happen and just things happen in general. I mean, he taught me a lot about how to just get on with it and get on with it in an interesting way. You know, I mean, use everything, use all the moment is that moment. And it, everything in, encapsulated between the time you start and between the time you end, it's, it's all fair game. And um, there's no, there is no premeditation. And you, if you hold on to any of these things too hard, then yeah, you're going to fuck up. But if you don't hold on to anything too hard, then everything can be beautiful. Everything can be magical. So I don't know. I think, yeah, I don't really premeditate things. I just kind of go with it. But it's, I mean, that's connected to, to the way that I, I try to handle myself outside of the sound and music sphere as well. That's so nicely articulated. I think that this question kind of jars immediately with that. But um, how do you handle if your son needs a toilet in the middle of a concert? How do you uh, uh, <laughs> deal with that? I, 
Well, there were many different ways that I dealt with it because it didn't happen just once. Um, <laughs> if I'm playing with other people, then they continue to play while I bring him to the toilet and then I bring him back and then I continue to play. If I'm by myself, then maybe a nice person in the audience will take him or maybe I just go and deal with it really quickly and then come back on stage and continue. So it's a, I don't know. It just depends on the moment and depends on who's there. Um, I mean, there's another like early story of like the first time I went and played in Boston, I packed my son in the truck and we drove from Baltimore to Boston. It was nine hours. I thought I could manage it. And we got there and he was so antsy from sitting in the car for so many hours that I, I don't know why I thought that he would just sit in the back of the room and be content to play with Legos and color. And he wasn't. <laughs> so he was just running everywhere. And he came up to me. This is before he really understood this sort of idea of the proscenium, right? So you'd, there is no separation between mom and child. He just really freely would come up on stage. And then yeah, I remember he stole one of my bows. He ran outside on the sidewalk. And the, it was nice. The guys from the gallery were kind of looking after him. But he was just running, waving one of my bows above his head like a sword, just going crazy. <laughs> and I continued to play. I was playing in a trio. And then he came back up to me and he grabbed my other bow because I... Once he took my first bow, I just reached into my case and I grabbed the other one. <laughs> and then I continued, but then he took both of them. And I said, well, okay. So I, then I, everything went to pizzicato and the rubber ball and the body of the cello. That's, that's improvising, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, of course, it's not that I was completely relaxed during the whole thing. I was kind of new at this. So I was, uh, I'm really in my head. How am I dealing with this? This is kind of on the edge. Is he going to be okay? It seems like the guys are looking after him. I'm continuing to play while all these things are playing out in my head. It's carrying the moment. How do you carry it? If or if I, sometimes he would come up next to me when my eyes were closed while I was playing. And then all of a sudden he was just glued to my side, looking up at me. It's just there. <laughs> so um, I don't know. There's just countless of numbers of situations that I've had where I've really had to, I don't know, figure out how to make the best of the situation. And this really feeds into even when now I'm in more controlled situations. My son, of course, is an, uh, nearly an adult and he doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> and, um, but still, it's, uh, anything can happen, right? So it's, I don't know, everything is, every sound in the room, every sound outside the room, uh, the feeling that you get from people. It's like this, um, I don't know, quick, uh, especially like I'd had the links to this question you asked about how I start. I mean, there's this kind of quick, thin slice of how you can just get like, you take a deep breath in, you smell and try to get all the information that you can. And then you start. It's kind of making a quick uh, assessment um, and then keeping that, keeping those receptors open and then everything is moving along. Oh, that was wonderful. Um, I, I'm intrigued to know what does, what does he think of your music? Do you discuss your music with him much? Um, I think he thinks it's pretty normal. <laughs> 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 oh, I didn't happen to fall asleep during your last concert. I mean, he doesn't, I, He's been through so many different kinds. I mean, not just my music, you know, but just tons of people, tons of different kind of probably to other kids that he knows would be completely bizarre and weird situations. But, I mean, he grew up partially. I lived in a warehouse, like a communal sort of artist's warehouse in Baltimore. He used to ride his bike to the bathroom. I don't know. We had concerts and parties and where he's asleep behind the door and then there's like a there's 400 people in the warehouse and we're doing Fela Kuti and I don't know anyway so he he had a really interesting upbringing wow um but it's for him it's not like wow I had such a different he understands that it's different than his friends but he he doesn't really think about it. I, th I, I don't know. I think he is a really good listener because he's made some uh, Im impressive comments in the past. But I don't, it's not really music isn't 
super his thing. And I never pushed what I did on him. It's just, it's part of his life. It's um, a part of his life is growing up around tons of adults who are very young at heart and very curious about him. And, and just, he was around lots of different kinds of people and lots of different kinds of music and lots of different situations all over the world. Um, lots of different touring situations. And I mean, he, he now he's, uh, he's wants to go into biomedical engineering with a concentration of working on um, neuroprosthetics for hands and arms. Wow. So that's, that's his interest. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's not like he's become like a, he's, it's sort of a, I, I didn't want him to do anything other than what he wanted to do. I mean, he's always been a kind of science and engineering guy. My, the whole rest of my family is actually, I was sort of a, a weird product of, I don't know, like a black sheep sort of situation, a blip, um, in the, in the science and engineering lineage of my family. So it's kind of continuous with my son and, um, I'm proud of, I mean, I'm super proud of him. He's, he's a huge reason why I do everything that I do. And he's a huge reason that I do everything that I do. And he's, um, it's my priority, so. If uh, you'd be able to tell me your third album, Audrey, and uh, why this person, I guess, um, or the album, whichever, I guess, speaks to you first, uh, why it's important to you? Uh, I, I met Susan, I think, back in 2005. She was still living in Houston, and we ended up playing at a small festival in Austin, Texas, um, I played with her and Tatsuya Nakatani, who I was on tour with, and I just, there was something really curious about her, very, I don't know, she's, she's, she, there was just, just a lot of depth in the, the music that I heard, and when we played, it's just this kind of gorgeous ocean of pedal steel guitar that she has completely opens up this sound world and you become completely immersed. I mean, it's like submerging into this rich sea of, of sound and timbre and textural things. Everything's kind of super wide open and you hear, I don't know, there's just, there's so much variation to the, the sound. And just her as a person, I, we used to be closer friends and I, I've, since I've moved from Baltimore, we've sort of lost touch a bit, but still for me, her music is, there's something very soulful and ecstatic and in a kind of melancholy way. And I don't know, she's somebody that feels things really deeply and I, I, I feel this in her music. So it is, um, it's very emotional, but in a completely different, different way. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I just chose this one album. I have listened to it before and, but it's, yeah, again, it's more like what I know of her as a person and, and the music that I knew from her when we were around each other more. So, and we played together, I think, a few times after that as well. And then she moved to Baltimore. She lives there now. And what was it like playing with her? It's been so long now. I think um, I don't remember exactly. I mean, it's uh, I don't re I don't know actually. I don't really remember except that the she really created these huge swells of sound, which were sort of beds that I could kind of work in between. But then again, now my process is quite different with just the voice. I think then it was with the cello too. It was a kind of way of the sound of the pedal steel and the cello. And then perhaps my vocal improvisations were a bit more melodic during that time. I don't know. It was a sort of very um, lush kind of music, I feel like, that came out of it. Sometimes explosive, but somehow always sort of rich and lush. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that... Um I mean, the angle you've taken with these three picks in that the person is 
more important than the album, I guess, but I really struggled to find the music of, of this record online, so I ended up watching instead, or experiencing any recordings I could find, but also interviews and mm-hmm. um, performances as well. It was something very different in terms of how uh, I understand um, people to connect with the lap steel guitar. It felt very, um, I, I don't know if serene's the right word, but I often have more vigorous, I guess, associations with how people tend to, to play that instrument. I mean, did coming into a music have any shaping on how you perceive the lap steel or the potential of that instrument? Or I don't, I don't think I thought about it that much hmm. in that regard I mean uh, I mean instruments are kind of I don't know it's a weird thing like now I feel like they've become sort of their incidents they're not it's more about the person and their decision making which defines the kind of music they make and the, the it, well of course it's in it, it, it's the instrument is important but it's also not I, I don't know yeah I think more about people when I think about music that I like than the actual mu- instrument or the like, I feel like it's completely fair for me to show up at, at a gig and not bring anything that they might expect me to have, for instance. Because it's not about that. It's not about me being a vocalist or me being a cellist or me being a, I don't know. It's just more about me, right? So it's this sort of unique, distinctive take that everybody has on the way that they go about sort of organizing material and sound and texture and timbre and melody and this huge spectrum of experience. interesting you, you mentioned it's um not about being a, a vocal improviser i wonder do, do you think though that any of that idea of being uh, feeling greater connection to people rather than instruments uh, has any relation to your the frequency with which you do vocal improvisation is there any sense of being less tethered to a particular means of of um of performing um, because you, you don't have a, uh, I, I guess, an instrument instrument to which you have a primary relationship. Well, I do. I have cello. I have a very primary relationship to my instrument. Mm. Um, but the voice itself is is the first instrument that everybody has. So it feels very uh, direct and very primal and very. I mean, it's the basically if you think a sound and you can make the sound faster than any instrument that you can, that is sort of external, right? If I can think about a sound in my head, I can just make it. I can just change the way I talk immediately, and it's a, it, it is, it's very immediate, and it's a, it's kind of remarkable, and it's remarkable the kind of dynamic range that it has. This sort of biological instrument you carry around with yourself which is tied to who you are and and it has so much uh, breadth and depth and power actually because everybody has a voice and everybody in a way can uh receive the voice i mean of course sometimes in a if if they're not ready to, for things to become so personal and people some people don't like listening to the voice because it's too close. Some people like instrumental music more because it sort of separates things. It creates a border somehow. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still, I still play the cello, not as often. I'm, it's just part of this process I'm going through, but it still also feels really immediate to me. And, uh, but it is very vocally driven. My cello playing is, uh, it's like, there's so much breath in it. There's so much language in it, which is not language necessarily from cello repertoire, or it's more 
um, immediately linked to the way that I actually use my voice. So, but this would just completely changed also over the years. Your, your relationship to the voice has changed? The cello also. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I love playing them together. I mean, it's just another process because you're negotiating at that point. With the voice, it's just sort of an immediate, like, uh, you, get the, you get your results really quickly. And then with the cello, and then I would also have uh, an instrument by Peter Blasser. I played uh, one of his analog synths. So three separate instruments, and then it's really about negotiating three separate materials and and melding them together into a music or a kind of language. But it's more complicated. It's more com not more co complex, but it's more complicated because you have you're like a, I'm like a one woman band. It's um, interesting you mentioned about talking about the uh, I guess the immediacy of the voice. Um, and I remember back to that Fort Process show, I think I saw Scat Gobs and you without much time in between. Um, <laughs> and just the array of audience responses to those shows was insane. I think we spoke earlier about the the humour that can occur, I think, in those kind of performances. Mm. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but I, I, I suppose that comes with that juxtaposition of doing something that I guess is socially probably taboo. Yeah, I have a feeling that was I have a feeling that was Scatcombs. It's funnier to people than what I do. And I <laughs> <laughs> But they they kind of bring it on themselves, I think, partially. I, I think um I mean I, I have a really long my longest running project is with Phil Minton. It's two voices. Hmm. And we have a mixed reactions when we do stuff together. It is sometimes of course it's comical, but it's a kind of comical, um, the reaction is sometimes only, it's, it's elicited very specifically. I, I, I have to say that it's different if it was just me on stage, that people don't laugh as much. I mean, they do sometimes because, uh, but it's not, people perceive things differently as because of the sources and what they appear like, for instance, just earlier when I was talking about Scott, I mean, it has so much to do with what he does is the way that he looks and mm. his scale and the beard and the, I, I think he wishes sometimes it wasn't so because he's so much more than the outward appearance. And, and this same as me. I mean, I'm an Asian female that's American, which is uh, immediately though, when I'm in front of people, you know, they, people assume all sorts of things, right? So, I don't know, I, don't, I can't tell you how many times that people have uh, assumed that, first of all, that I was, I'm, I had some sort of Mongolian vocal training, or if, uh, if I take any of the material I have from my Asian ancestry, or, um, it's... Oh, really? Yeah, often. Very often, really often. <laughs> wow. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it always uh, impresses me that there's another person that has the same sort of associations, but it's because they, people are so visual and they have so many, so much um, predefined judgments about people because, it, or, or, and it, it informs the way that they react also, depending on, on uh, how you look and what they think you are. There's always all these assumptions, and it's always. It, I think this probably feeds into what I do as well, in a way. I mean, people don't assume, first of all, that I'm my age. They don't assume that I have a 17-year-old son. They don't assume that I'm American. <laughs> they don't assume a lot of things. I don't know. There's there's always other assumptions before any of those things could possibly come into play. So. Hmm. When you say you've, it feeds into what you do, do, do you mean that sure. in, in terms of your own self-conduct or, or in the uh, way that it's framed by other people? Mm, in my, my own self-conduct, I think I have tendency to to um, to not do what people expect, I guess. And maybe it's a bit reactionary sometimes. Maybe it's a bit adolescent <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I'm never, I'm, I will never fully be an adult. 
but uh, just a, just enough that I can be responsible to a certain extent so, that my son respects me. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that that seems like a lovely place to to wrap up, Audrey. Thank you so much for um for taking the time to talk about these people and these records and your own practice with me. It's been really enlightening, and I really appreciate it. Sure, it's my pleasure. I don't know if there's anywhere that people should be headed if they want to check out your music or um, see when you're playing live. Is there a best place for them to be going online? It's my website. It's just www.audreychen.com. Well, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. <laughs>